Hey everybody, how's it going? Welcome back along to the Chronicles of Aguna, the Arsenal podcast. Hope you're all good. Hope you're all well. We are back after a few days off to recharge. It was much needed and what better way to return than with a mailbag episode, an episode built solely around the questions that you guys have been sending in throughout the duration of the week so far. We'll also take a few from the chat box as well if we've got time. Uh, Really, really looking forward to this episode. It's been a little while, as I say, and I'm delighted to be back. If I could quickly remind you before we dive into some of those fantastic questions that have been coming my way, if you're watching us on YouTube, make sure you leave a like on the video. Make sure you're subscribed to the channel if you are new. And if you're listening on an audio platform, well, then leave us a review because that really, really does help. It's been an amazing time for the podcast. We made it up into the top 25 uh, football podcasts just last week, which was phenomenal, unthinkable when we uh, set out. Uh, to begin this podcast so I'm chuffed I'm I'm delighted but I have you guys of course to thank for that for your consistent and constant uh, support of the program so thank you all so so much Um, hope you're all good as I said hope you're all well Uh, without further ado then let's dive into some of those questions because I tell you what there's one it's in the title and it's divided opinion already and it concerns Mesut Ozil who of course yesterday announced his retirement from the sport he is no longer going to be playing uh, football at a professional level Uh, what I'll do actually is I'll just quickly read out to you guys um, what Mesut Ozil put out publicly he put out a statement Uh, hold on a second where is it here we go of course former World Cup winner uh, former Arsenal man but of course left the club somewhat in disgrace uh, moved on went to Turkey hasn't worked out for him in Turkey either And uh, just yesterday, Mesut Ozil put out this message. After thoughtful consideration, I'm announcing my immediate retirement from professional football. I've had the privilege to be a professional footballer for almost 17 years, and I feel incredibly thankful for the opportunity. But in recent weeks and months, having also suffered some injuries, it's become more and more clear that it's time to leave the big stage of football. It's been an amazing journey filled with unforgettable moments and emotions. I want to thank my clubs, Schalke, Werder, Bremen, Real Madrid, Arsenal, Fenerbahce, Basek Shahir, and the coaches who supported me, plus teammates and friends. He goes on to thank his family. uh, And he says um, he's looking forward to everything that's in front of him uh, with his beautiful wife and his two beautiful daughters. But you can be sure that you will hear from him from time to time on the social media channels. Uh, Boyce88 in the chat says, yeah, he'll be playing professional Fortnite. Do you know what? I wouldn't be surprised. We all know uh, that Mesut Ozil's got a a passion for gaming. Um, You know, we used to complain about that as Arsenal fans, didn't we? Particularly when he was unavailable uh, in important games, he would often um, be be sort of seen on social media to be posting about his, uh, you know, progress on one particular game, Fortnite, as you've mentioned. And it did used to get under people's skin. Um, Look, I mean... I think one thing we can all agree on is that at his best, in his pomp, Mesut Ozil was an unbelievable footballer. I will have nothing else said. I, I don't think that we got the best out of him at Arsenal. I think his best days were prior to joining Arsenal. But there were moments in the red and white of Arsenal where we looked at him and we thought, wow, what a player, how lucky we are to have him. I remember when we signed him, the buzz around that deal was huge. It was absolutely huge because we had gone out and signed one of the world's best players at the time. He wanted to join Arsenal. We managed to get the deal done. And um, 
And when he came in, I, I was blown away at the start, looking at his kind of technical ability, all the brilliant things uh, he could do on a football pitch. And even when things progressed and it became more and more apparent that actually Mesut Ozil wasn't going to be this guy that took Arsenal back right to the top, um, I still feel privileged that we got to see some of those moments because um, some of them were, were truly sensational. I've seen a lot of clips going around on social media since that announcement. The, the goal that he scored against Ludogorets is one that um, you know I, I've seen go around a lot. And listen, although um, you know it, it didn't end well, although there were issues, although um, you could argue that he left the club disgraced. Um, I think that now that the dust has settled a little bit and I guess there's less anger in the atmosphere with regards to Mesut Ozil, I think at the very least we can look back and say he was a very, very good player that we were privileged to watch for a period of time. Was he an Arsenal legend though? That The reason I asked that and the reason I've put that in the title is because that was one of the questions that has been sent over to me. It came over from Tony via email and... Um, and I wanted to get into this one. And I guess this is a little bit of a debate around not just Mesut Ozil, but what warrants being labelled a club legend? What is it that you need to do to be considered a club legend? Um, what kind of legacy do you need to leave? And did what happened at the end of Mesut Ozil's Arsenal tenure make it impossible for him to be remembered as a legend, regardless of how good he was on the pitch? Um, let's see what you guys are saying in the chat. We'll start off with the poll because we've got a poll running in the chat and we'll leave it running throughout the duration of this uh, live show. At the moment, 82% of you say no. Mesut Ozil is not an Arsenal legend. I can understand uh, why people feel that way. Let me know your thoughts in the live chat and we'll read out some of the comments as well. Um, I'll give you guys my thoughts in just a moment, but let's try and gauge the mood uh, in the chat box as well. Daniel says, absolutely not. He's nowhere near a legend. Uh, Junior Gunner says, the amount of sickies he pulled and away days he ghosted, it's an absolute no. He then goes on to say, the amount of respect Messert gets for ending our trophy drought when he did next to nothing in the semifinals and finals of the FA Cup compared to Giroud, Rambo and Sanchez, it baffles me. He had his moments. Paul Nell uh, rates Aaron Ramsey more than Messer Ozil. I don't know if he means in terms of ability, or in terms of his contribution to Arsenal. Maybe we can clear that up. Uh, Richie says, Ozil in his prime was breathtaking. That Ludogorets goal was outstanding. It's a shame how it finished. Um, what else have we got? Uh, Dial Square says, Harry, you know my feelings on this guy. I don't think anyone can name his top five match winning games for Arsenal. Just that goal versus Ludicrous. Not Ludogorets, Ludicrous. The most disappointing, and he puts in quotation marks, Great player of all time. Steve says, sorry, not a legend for me. Uh, what did we get out of him? Three decent seasons? Nowhere near long enough, in my opinion. A shame because he was a really fantastic talent. Uh, BX Gunner goes on to say, Ozil, the spineless gossiping wonder. Um, and uh, Fujian, Fujian, sorry if I've butchered that, says, nowhere near a legend of the club, maybe of the game. Okay, let's tackle this then. Let me get into it with, uh, or let me share with you guys my thoughts and views on this. I think this is dependent on what you class as a, as a club legend. And I think the problem we have when we're trying to, to come to some sort of conclusion here, or a blanket conclusion, one on which we can all agree, is that different people have different criterias for what makes or constitutes 
being labelled a club legend. So for me, I think about what they achieved. I think about their ability. How good were they? Um, and I think about uh, how they made me feel at the time as an Arsenal fan. But the truth is that not every single one of the players that you would definitely consider as a legend ticks every single one of those boxes. They might tick two, they might tick three, they might tick four on some in some cases. But I'll give you a, cry, a prime example, right? I would say that somebody like Gilberto Silva is a club legend because of what the team went on to achieve with him. I would say that somebody like Ray Parler could be considered a club legend. Did Ray Parler or Gilberto Silva have anywhere near the ability and talent that Mesut Ozil did? And the answer to that is no. So you find yourself in this situation where you're trying to, you're trying to come up with a list of what constitutes being labelled as a legend, but the same isn't applicable for everyone. And the reason for that is because a lot of your opinion on this will be driven and will be built upon how that player made you feel. And the problem is with Mesut Ozil that no matter how talented he was and no matter how many great moments he produced, I remember a number of games sort of coming away from them thinking, wow, this guy is just phenomenal. You know, this guy is just unbelievable. But the problem was everything went south towards the end. You know, it was very clear towards the end that Mesut Ozil didn't necessarily want to be here and had no interest in football anymore. Uh, not at Arsenal anyway. There were other things at play. There were other problems ongoing. There were other disputes, some with the club, some with the management at the time as well. Uh, you know, Mikel Arteta, who admired Mesut Ozil as a football player and and, and spoke about, um, you know, how much he likes him and, and all of those things. Great. But the problem is that he just didn't get the right attitude from him. And in a lot of ways, Mikel Arteta, you could argue, um, used Mesut Ozil as an example, as a bit of a scapegoat. Um, scapegoat the right word or, or, or someone that he could point to and say, this is what happens when you've got the wrong attitude. It doesn't matter how talented you are. If you're not on board, if you're not singing from the same hymn sheet as me, if you're not fully in support of the project, if you're not pulling your weight for everybody else around you as well as yourself, then you are no good to me. And so Mesut Ozil was an opportunity for Mikel Arteta, as was Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, to really stamp his authority and hammer that message home. And listen, the change in terms of the attitude and the mood around the club, all of that needed to um, needed to happen, you know. And, and when you have a couple of big examples like Ozil, Aubameyang, players who didn't want to um, follow the right path, you know, players who didn't want to... Um, Follow the right path is not the right way of putting this, is it? Players that clearly weren't willing to commit or, or behave in the way that Mikel Arteta felt necessary were shown the door. And, and that has now bred, in my opinion, a much better culture at the football club. And I just think when I, when I read this question earlier on today, I had a quick look back at what I was saying around the time where Mesut Ozil was banished and then essentially moved on eventually. And I remember at the time thinking, look, if his attitude's wrong, we can't have this, you know, particularly when we're rebuilding, particularly when we're trying to fix what's clearly a broken culture. But at the same time, I also remember thinking, but my God, we can't create any chances. We're really, really poor at the moment. There's a lack of class in that area. There's a real lack of ability 
um, in the creative third. And we've got this guy who's astronomically talented sitting on the bench. And I remember sort of questioning the, the decision at the time to leave him out. And I was thinking, surely there's got to be a way of getting the best out of him. You can look at him and say, right, he's not part of the long-term future and he's not someone that I want to work with moving forward. But in the interim, surely he was a better option than some of the alternatives we had available to us. But credit to the club, credit to Mikel Arteta because they stuck to his to their guns and they eventually, um, you know, moved him out. Eventually it got to a, a situation where there was just no coming back from it. But how much does that play on my opinion of Mesut Ozil as a player for Arsenal now that the dust has settled? At the time, I was angry. I was angry with both sides. I was angry with him for the way he'd handled it. Uh, but I was also angry with the way the club were performing and the fact that we had this talent on the substitutes bench who just wasn't getting a look in um, as well. So it was really, really difficult at that time, you know, to know which way to go with this. I know a lot of people were saying now, nope, I back the club 100%. At the time, there was a massive divide over this subject and over this player because I remember it clearly. Um, and so, yeah, you know, it's um, it's a hard one. Club legend, I wouldn't go as far as saying that. I'm not going to call Mesut Ozil an Arsenal legend. I'm going to call him one of the greatest players in terms of talent, though, that Arsenal have ever had. And I'll go as far as saying that. Um, you know, think about the biggest talents Arsenal have ever had. Forget about what they achieved. Just think about pure, natural, raw talent and perhaps what they went on to achieve elsewhere if indeed we were unable to keep hold of them. So let's put into that category Thierry Henry, right? Unbelievable footballer. Uh, Dennis Burkamp, unbelievable footballer. Cesc uh, Fabregas goes into that category for me. Look at what he went on to achieve. Robin Van Persie, in terms of talent, goes into that category. Mesut Ozil is up there with them in terms of his talent. Application, not so much, but talent, definitely. And so it makes me reluctant to just kind of brush off the idea of, of Mesut Ozil being an Arsenal legend. Was he one of the best players we ever had in terms of his talent? I would say he absolutely was. The problem is we didn't get the application all of the time. We didn't get the best out of him. And you just wonder if him being in a stronger Arsenal team would have um, made all the difference. I think now as well, I think what people look at with Mesut Ozil or, or what people discuss now and the comparison they often make is, well, look at Martin Odegaard. He's immensely talented, just like Mesut Ozil was, plays in a similar area of the pitch but also gives us hard work, gives us legs, gives us the ability to press. And when you look at Martin Odegaard, it makes Mesut Ozil look even worse. But I think there was a period in football where number 10s were a thing, where number 10s were a massive deal, were a massive part of your creativity as a football team. And the game developed and moved on from that. And we ended up in a position where there isn't that many specialist 10s anymore. And we've moved more towards eights that can play in the more advanced roles and have that creativity about them. And Martin Odegaard, because of his work rate, because of his ability to get back and defend and help out in other ways, he can do that, but also has the technical ability to help you and to create things in the final third. So he's a much more rounded player, Martin Odegaard. And if he continues on this trajectory, maybe he will um, go on to achieve as many things um, 
or maybe not as many things. It's difficult to win the World Cup with Norway, with all due respect. Um, but maybe he can go on and cement his status uh, as one of European football's elite. But that doesn't mean that because the game moved on and now we're looking at a player who plays that role in the modern way as such, that doesn't mean that you should discard the talent that Mesut Ozil had. He was way ahead of so many players around him in terms of what he could see and what he could read and how he could sort of see pictures and, and understand how games were going to pan out and play passes into areas that looked like dead areas, um, but would so often unlock defences. So I don't want to shit on Mesut Ozil is basically what I'm saying. Club legend, wouldn't go as far as saying that, but um, certainly one of the most talented players that we've ever had. There's an argument that he's the most talented player we ever signed um, during the Emirates era. Um, some people will talk about others, but in terms of players that we brought in post the move to Emirates Stadium, I think uh, Mesut Ozil is right up there in terms of talent and ability. Application, though, not so much. Um, just having a quick peek at the poll again uh, that we put out at the start of the show. Would you class Mesut Ozil as an Arsenal legend? Um, it's slightly creeping up on the yes column uh, because at the beginning we had 80 plus percent of you saying no. And now we've only got 72 percent of you saying no with 28 percent saying yes, Mesut Ozil is an Arsenal legend. Uh, this comes, of course, off the back of his retirement announcement uh, that he put out yesterday. So. Thanks for the memories, Messer. Uh, but unfortunately, what happened at the end will always leave uh, a sour taste in, in the mouths of some Arsenal supporters. And that's not easy to get past and is always going to work against you in this type of debate and in this type of question. Thank you for the question. It was a really good one. Uh, I knew it would be the one that split opinion the most. Uh, so I wanted to start with that one. Um, thank you so, so much. We'll take a few more comments on this and then we'll move on. Uh, Mafia Boss says, what determines a legendary status, Harry? Um, I mentioned a few things. So achievements, uh, ability, um, I think connection with the fans. I think if you've got a really strong connection with the fans, it's easier to be um, thought of as a legend or it's more likely that you're going to be thought of as a legend because people will associate you and your impact um, with how you made them feel and I think if you make fans feel special um, then you know you're halfway there um, so there's a few boxes that I think you need to tick so achievements uh, the way you make the fans feel the connection with the fans your talent um, and I guess what you achieved as a team during that period of time because if it's a golden period then people will always remember you we've had some really talented players in some barren periods and unfortunately they've not got the credit they deserved because of that Right. I mean, it's a classic case. Look at Harry Kane. Right. To use an example from that lot down the swamp. Harry Kane is probably Spurs' greatest ever footballer. But I guarantee you that if you speak to an older generation of Spurs fans, they will they will talk to you about players that maybe weren't as talented as Harry Kane, but won things with the football club and therefore elevated their status because they were at the club at a point where the club were delivering and where the club were performing. I know there's not many examples of that when Spurs is the example, but you know what I'm trying to say. Often you associate club success with individual players. Um, and even if the club might have had that success or might not have had that success with or without them, you don't really care. You, you'll always make that association, I think. And um, 
And Mesut Ozil came in and Arsenal ended a trophy drought, but it wasn't the trophy that we as fans were desperate to see us win. We never felt like we achieved massive things. You know, a few FA Cups, great. But had Arsenal won the Premier League, for example, under Mesut Ozil uh, or with Mesut Ozil in the side, I think this would be a very different conversation. And that's the point I'm trying to make. So it's not always within your control as an individual. If your team aren't at the elite level, you can play out of your bloody skin. But people won't always make that association between yourself and legend if there wasn't anything um, to show for it, you know. Um, Mafia Boss goes on to say he's a cult hero for me. Uh, Richie uh, references the quotes that he made about um, the Chinese. I, I think that certainly caused uh, an issue between him and Arsenal uh, because, um, because uh, yeah, you know, Arsenal weren't were obviously unhappy about that. Um, I, I don't even think that what Messer Ozil said was wrong, to be honest with you, um, based on what has come to light, I guess, since then. But Arsenal, I think, felt like that they they couldn't allow that to to go because of the impact it could have on their relationships with certain countries etc etc um but whatever the, the the right or wrong is there which i i don't want to get into whatever the right or wrong is i don't think the club took kindly to that and i think that was a big part of the the uh the breakdown in relationship between arsenal um and Mesut Ozil as well um, William says, do you think that in five or 10 years, the fan base will remember him more positively? I think like guys like Santi and Ramsey divided opinion when they were playing, but now people remember them very positively. For the record, I was never divided on Santi. I think Santi Cazorla was unbelievable, a fantastic player. Really, really enjoyed watching him. I thought he was um, unbelievable. Aaron Ramsdale, uh, Aaron Ramsdale, Aaron Ramsey um, yeah, at times I looked at him and thought, you're absolutely brilliant and you're fantastic. And there were times where I thought, are you going to go on to this next level? Like it was quite difficult with um, with Aaron Ramsey, I thought at times. So, yeah, um, I agree with that. But I do also agree with your point that I think later on uh, down the line, when people have kind of got over what happened um, with... Uh, with Mesut Ozil and the way he left and the way it all sort of crumbled, I think that people will look back at him uh, a little bit differently. I, I, I do believe that. I do. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's move on from that question because we've got a fair few to get through. Spent a long time on that one, but it was a quite a meaty one, quite a juicy one, wasn't it? A chunky one, uh, however you want to put it. Let me just uh, bring back up uh, some of the questions that were sent into me because there were some really, really, really good ones. Uh, let's take this one, uh, which comes from Nav. Uh, Nav, who's normally in our chat box. I haven't seen him today, but I'm sure he'll be here at some point or watching this or listening to this back. Uh, so a big shout out to you, my friend. He says, at any point in the season, would you like to see Jesus and Trossard play together? Or would you say they are too, they are too similar in terms of their profiles? So... I would have no issue with them playing together. I don't think that Leandro Trossard is a centre forward. I think that Leandro Trossard was seen as the best option, best alternative, given that at the time, Gabby Jesus was not fit enough to play and still isn't fit enough to play 90, really. And that um, and that obviously Eddie Nketiah is sidelined at this moment in time. 
So I don't think that when Mikel Arteta signed Leandro Trossard, he signed him to play as a centre-forward. Therefore, I think he can play with Gabriel Jesus. I think he's clearly a, a really clever footballer. I think that you you can tell that based on the understanding that he's developed so quickly with Gabriel Martinelli. Now, this is not to have a go at Eddie Nketiah, but look at the difference in Martinelli's performances with... How do I say this without being disrespectful to Eddie? With a smarter player around him, with a smarter player in the centre-forward position. I think Martinelli's pick-up in form has been partly down to, you know, he went through a difficult period and, and he's come out the other side of that. But I also think the fact that he's played with Trossard um, and, and now will be able to play again with Jesus, I think has really helped Gabriel Martinelli. So I think there's a sophistication to Leandro Trossard's game that Eddie Nketiah doesn't have and can't bring to the table right now. But, as I say, Trossard, to me, is not a centre-forward. He's not naturally a centre-forward. I would say that Leandro Trossard's best position is from the left flank. And so there's no reason for me why he can't play that position in order to give Martinelli a rest or in the event that Martinelli's unavailable and link up with Gabriel Jesus just as well um, and uh, and link up just as effectively. So, yeah, I think they could play together. I think they absolutely can. As I say, I don't think Leandro Trossard is or was brought in to be um, a centre forward. I think that's Jesus out, Enketia out. Who's the next best option? What's the next best alternative? It's Leandro Trossard. Let's put him in. Let's take this one uh, from Matt. Uh, really, really good question. He says, hey, Carrie, question. I love Balogun and don't doubt his quality. But is he the right fit for a possession-based side? Seems like he thrives playing counter-attacking football. I want us to keep him and give him a chance, but wondered your thoughts. Okay, so um, in advance of this podcast, I sat down and I went through all of following Balogun's goals uh, that he has scored so far this season out in France. He's having a, a wonderful, wonderful campaign uh, needed to play regularly, has been given the opportunity to go out on loan. He's joined Ligue 1. Uh, he's joined uh, Stade Rems in, uh, in France. And he has scored 17 goals in 27 league appearances. And he's got one goal in the Coupe de France as well. So really, really good season for following Balogun, right? There's no question about that. Um, he's been in the starting eleven, starting eleven for them, eighty-six percent of the time in the league. He's played eighty-five percent of the minutes, and he has participated, one way or the other, whether that's been a goal or an assist, in fifty-three percent of their goals this season. He is having a blinding campaign. Fantastic. One of the things you always have to take into consideration, though, is that the Premier League is much more difficult than Liga. And that's not being disrespectful to that league. I hate when people just write off leagues and say, well, you know what, he's done it there, but it doesn't matter because that league's rubbish and, and that doesn't carry over. When you're a goal scorer, I think it's a bit different. I think for goal scorers, you need to get into the habit and you need to be full of confidence. And what better way to build your confidence than to go somewhere where maybe the standard is a little bit lower, but isn't bad by any stretch of the imagination. Build up your confidence, build up your belief in yourself and brush up on your skills and brush up in the areas in which you need to improve. Following Balogun's gone out there and he's done that, right? And his attitude looks phenomenal. 
Um, some of the comments he's been making recently about what happens in the future, about coming back to Arsenal, etc., etc., um, about him looking forward to having a chat with Mikel Arteta in the summer. That's the kind of stuff that as a fan backing him, supporting him, you want to read, you want to hear. Um, so yeah, look, I'm, I'm really, I've been really impressed by what I've seen of him so far this season. I've been really impressed by the work he's done. And, um, and I do believe that he has a future at Arsenal Football Club. With regards to what you said about him seeming like he's someone who uh, thrives on the counter-attack and thrives on the break and, and, and loves to run in behind. I think when you look at a lot of his goals, I can understand why you've come to that conclusion. What I would say is there's a lot of different types of goals. And that's what really, really encouraged me watching them back today. You know, there's somewhere he runs in behind and he almost finishes sort of Thierry Henry-like, coming in from the left, slightly left centre position, uh, opening up his body with his right foot and steering into the far corner. He scored plenty of penalty kicks as well, a variety of penalty kicks. Some he's put in the bottom corners, some he's smashed down the middle, one he put in the top corner. Again, variety. That's what you want to see. A top, top goal scorer brings variety in terms of their finishes and in terms of how they take opportunities. Some wonderful... Uh, finishes from balls coming over his shoulder um, and then first time volleys in towards goal. But perhaps for me, where I get or, or where I took the most encouragement was none of those things because getting in behind is is something that strikers love. If they've got the mobility and the pace to get into those areas, then of course you get in behind, you're in and it's a much easier opportunity. But where I think a striker really needs to use their brain and really needs to uh, be alert and, and trust their instincts is when they are facing a low block and balls come into the penalty area and it's a crowded penalty area. And what Foller and Balligan seems to have based on what I've seen is this incredible composure in those types of situations. This composure that allows him or or kind of makes him basically sometimes just look at the situation and think, hold on a minute, I'm not going to snatch at this. I'm not just going to swing a boot at it like, uh, you know, and hope for the best. I'm not just going to whack, uh, whack this goalwards. I'm not just going to put my foot through it. Sometimes you will see following Balligan in those situations, even inside the six yard box, take a touch. And why does he do that? Because he's got this incredible foresight of how the move is going to break down. For example, the ball comes to you on the edge of the six yard box and the goalkeeper comes charging out to you. It would be easy to panic and think, shit, I've got to get this shot off before the goalkeeper smothers it. Hurry up. Come on. Get on with it. What the real killers in front of goal do is anticipate what the goalkeeper is going to do. And that might mean you need to lift it over the oncoming goalkeeper. Or if you take a touch to your right or left, you take it completely away from him. And then you allow yourself a second opportunity to compose yourself and slot the ball home. And that is what Balligan seems to be able to do. He seems to be able to take the crazy and the panic out of a situation, uh, think very coolly and be able to sidestep people within the penalty area and finish. He also seems uh, to be uh, very good at kind of running beyond, uh, taking the defender with him, but then knowing just when the right moment is to just drop his run. So if he, he charges into the penalty area as a centre-half, you're going to go with him. You think he's making a headway for the uh, six-yard box. You charge all the way back in and following Balligan will think, 
hold on a minute. That's where you think I'm going to go. I'm going to pause my run. I'm going to stop right here on the edge of the six-yard box in line with the penalty spot. And my winger is going to pick me out and then I'm going to have created or manufactured the space from which to score because I've deceived the defender. And those kind of things, right? That's what natural goal scorers have. You know, that's... You you need to be in the right positions, obviously, but you also need to be able to think in those moments. And if you think back to some of the players that we've had at Arsenal over the years, right? A good example of this was Theo Walcott. You gave Theo Walcott an opportunity, a snapshot, um, one that he didn't have time to think about. He would invariably take it. But you put Theo Walcott through on goal and give him five, six seconds to carry the ball towards goal. All sorts of thoughts used to go through his mind. It'd scramble his head and he'd invariably show a lack of composure. And he'd probably miss it and fluff his lines. That's just an example of a player that, in my opinion, scored a lot of goals because he had incredible pace and had instincts. But when he needed to think and when he needed to be composed and when he needed to be one step ahead in terms of his thoughts and in terms of how he was going to play that particular moment, he'd panic and he'd get it all wrong. Following Balogun seems to have that cold-blooded killer sort of attitude, I guess, in those moments. And that gives me huge encouragement as to what he can go on and achieve. Is Arsenal's game right now best suited to following Balogun and his style? Maybe not. You know, maybe um, he won't fit in as well as people think he might. You know, scoring goals in France doesn't automatically mean that you plug in here. But there are other elements to what Mikel Arteta demands from a centre-forward. And I think that, you know, if he can show that he can work on those and if he can show that he can improve in those areas, there's no reason why he doesn't have a, won't get a chance. Based on what I've seen this season, and I, again, I don't want to shit on Eddie Nketiah because I think he's done really well coming in for Jesus. Um, you know, we, we started that period without the Brazilian, five points clear at the top of the league. And by the time Jesus re returned and has returned now, we're still five points clear at the top of the league. So Eddie Nketiah deserves credit for that and praise for that because we didn't fall off a cliff. Um, you could argue that other players have helped that by stepping up, etc., etc. Agreed. But um, overall, Eddie Nketiah did a good job. But when I look at following Balogun now, I see a striker that just looks that little bit more complete. And again, we'll only really know his level or, or if he's good enough for Arsenal, I think, when he comes back into the picture. But he's certainly having a wonderful time in France. I 100% keep him. And I believe there is a chance that he comes in in the summer and steps ahead of Eddie in the pecking order. And for all those people that said Arsenal was stupid to give Eddie that contract and that salary, well, actually now, if Arsenal do decide that Balogun is the one and the one they prefer and the one they want to go with, there is a chance that Arsenal can now sell Eddie and it will more than cover that contract that they gave him. Why? Because he came in and he deputised for Gabriel Jesus and probably everyone in the Premier League from position eight downwards would look at him and think, yeah, he's a bloody good option. 30, 40 million pounds, centre forward, see you later. Everybody wins. Eddie gets to play more football. Arsenal get a big transfer fee and Arsenal... Um, get to make good on the investment they made in Eddie Nketiah. So 
yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what happens there. Because if Balogun does come back and goes ahead of Eddie in the pecking order, um, and again, I don't know that that's going to happen, but if it were to happen, where would that leave Eddie and Ketia? I'm sure he himself would then want to consider moving on. For sure. Surely. Okay, um, guys, there's nearly 100 of you with us live at the moment. I know it's the international break. I know people aren't as interested in club football at this moment in time. Um, but yeah, we are back. Uh, we did want to bring you uh, a couple of episodes uh, for the rest of this week. So we'll be doing this one. We'll be also looking uh, ahead to the remainder of the season, trying to predict how it's going to go. Um, I've sort of been sitting there with my uh, with my calculator and, and my pad and pen and trying to figure it all out. Uh, so we'll be doing a show on that as well in the coming days. This is the Mailbag Show if you're just joining us. So we are focused solely uh, on your questions, the questions that you've been submitting throughout the week. And we will take some from the chat as well towards the end. So far, we've talked Mesut Ozil. We've talked following Balogun. Uh, we've got plenty more to get through. But if I could just ask you to leave a like on the video if you haven't done so already, it would really, really help me. Um, and uh, if you're new to the channel, then please do subscribe as well. Um, so yeah, like, subscribe. You know the draw by now. If you're interested in accessing more uh, Chronicles of Aguna content, uh, post-match player ratings from all our Premier League games um, are released on the Another Slice platform. For those of you that don't know, it's basically Patreon, uh, but a different platform, uh, one that allows the creator a lot more freedom um, and uh, and gives us the opportunity uh, to monetize the podcast for reinvestment. But also, uh, we are donating to the Great Ormond Street Children's Hospital from the membership pot as well. Uh, so it helps us in our quest to support them as well. But yeah, uh, thank you. Like, subscribe. You know the drill by now. Uh, right, let's continue on. Let's have a quick stop off pit stop in the live chat box. Afsar says Balogun is better than Eddie, uh, in my opinion. Uh, Fujian72 says I'll be very disappointed if we let him leave in the summer. Just quickly on that, when I was talking about the possibility of selling Eddie and Ketia and making some serious dough, which is obviously something that will appeal to a football club if a player doesn't want to be there or, or they don't think he's a major part of their plans. Equally, right, we are in a position now where we can do whatever we want with Balogun as well because there will be clubs looking at this guy thinking, wow, he's a 30, 40 million pound striker. And so if the decision was taken, and I'm not saying I agree with it, but if it was taken that... Actually, you know what? Balogun, good player, had a great season in France last time out, has come back pre-season, not really feeling it. You could sell him for big money as well. So whatever happens, Arsenal win here. It's been a really good piece of business, sending him out on loan, allowing him to gain experience, allowing him to showcase what he can do. And when it goes successfully, you put yourself in a really strong uh, position moving forward. Uh, Khalid says... Think Eddie is an all-round better player. Never rated him before, but he's improved significantly and think he suits our style more than Balogun right now. Uh, Sko says, I want to see Balogun incorporated into the squad for at least the season. Then after, if either him or Eddie has to leave, so be it. Don't see why we can't use both because we have CL, uh, the Premier League and the Cups. Plus, of course, there will be injuries. Uh, agreed. Um... Doo -doo 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 -doo. What else have we got? Um, Dial Square says, Balogun, as you say, is a natural. Um, 
But what has impressed me more is how grown up he seems in his interviews. Not an awkward kid anymore. Yeah. I mean, the other thing as well, right? Like some people just are not natural or don't feel natural talking to people in interviews and in front of a camera. Um, and and that is something that you develop over time. You know, it's not something that you just bang. I, I'm, I'm all of a sudden going to come across great in every interview I do. No, you need to develop that, you know, as you build confidence, as you um, become more comfortable in your own skin, you, you're you much more open and you feel uh, much more confident in those situations. And a lot of the time we look at young players and we go, I don't know about him because he doesn't come across as very sort of switched on or, or, or very, um, you know, or, or very enthusiastic. But a lot of the time they're just kids, man. And, uh, and they need time. And yeah. You know, it's a skill as well as being skilled footballers. They have to become skilled uh, in terms of dealing with the media and all the other things that come along uh, with, of course, the ter- the territory and the job. Right. Let's move on. Question. Um, Matt Goon has got two questions. It's been cheeky, but we'll do it. There's a couple of you that have gone for two questions. I like it. Um, Matt says right now, what would be your favorite game slash moment of the season? Um, well, this is easy for me. I know we've won at Spurs and I know we've won at Chelsea and I know we beat Manchester United at the last minute or late on in the game. And there's been lots of incredible moments. It's got to be the Bournemouth one. I mean, I remember looking at it that day and thinking, we've we've cocked this up. You know, we've given Manchester City a route back in against the side that are fighting relegation that, you know, have, have got forward three or four times and managed to score on two of those occasions. It was a really, really stressful afternoon that was heading in a really shit direction, basically. And we managed to turn it around. Um, The eruption inside Emirates Stadium is like nothing I've ever experienced in there before. Um, People often reference the goal against Leicester, the year that we thought we might win the league. When they, of course, went on to win it, people referenced the Arshavin goal against Barcelona. That was crazy as well. But this was something different because there's so much more at stake. Everybody knows that that or will, if indeed Arsenal go on to win the Premier League, everybody will look back on that and say that was the moment. That was the moment where we saved ourselves. That was the moment where we really believed that anything was possible. And people will laugh at us maybe from the outside and say, well, it was only Bournemouth. But for me, that could be so significant in um, in the title race. And going back to what we were talking about earlier, what defines a club legend? I'll tell you what, if Arsenal go on and win the Premier League this season, Reese Nelson will be regarded as a club legend for that one moment. And that's what I mean. It's really difficult to kind of quantify what a legend is exactly or produce any sort of tick list because it's about how people make you and made you feel. And the way Reese Nelson made us feel that day was unbelievable. Unbelievable. So, um, yeah, that was my moment. Uh, he says, secondly, where do you realistically think this team can improve in the summer? Obviously, the squad could get better, but I genuinely struggle to think of realistic players that could make the starting 11 better. So um, I think we could do with, um, listen, I adore him more than most. I've backed him more than most. I've supported him more than most. But I think there are better players than Granit Xhaka out there. 
So that is one of the areas. But you, you're going to need to spend big, vast amounts of money if you're going to improve on Granite Shaka. So that was one of the areas I'd look at. Um, you know, obviously, Zinchenko is doing a wonderful job, has a very specific role, but defensively, I don't think he's fantastic. I don't think that... I think at the moment we're playing without specialist fullbacks. Ben White is a centre-back by trade. Zinchenko has played fullback for a long, long time, but is more of a midfield player in terms of the areas he picks up uh, the ball in and the areas in which he looks to drift into. It works for us because it works in our system, but you could argue that specialist fullbacks is an area that we need to look at. And I actually think that as wonderful as he's been and as great as he's been, and, and what a signing, I'm, I'm so delighted that he's back. Gabriel Jesus is not a cold-blooded killer in front of goal. He's just not. He hasn't scored in an awful long time. He's not a cold-blooded killer in front of goal. So if I'm being hypercritical, and I really like the first 11 at the moment, I think the focus has got to be on improving the squad so that when we do lose one or two players, particularly in that midfield area, uh, Thomas Partey is the one I think of straight away, we need to have better options and we need to have stronger alternatives. But what I'm saying here is that there are positions in the team that we could still upgrade on, but that means I, that, you know, you're looking at a really select few players in world football and you're going to have to spend crazy money to go and do that. For me, right now, it should be about the squad and improving the squad uh, because I think the drop-off still between our first 11 and everybody else is quite significant. There's a couple of positions where I'd argue we're, we're sufficiently covered, but the majority, we're not. And um, And yeah, but... As I say, the left eight position, probably specialist fullbacks and maybe a cold bloody killer in front of goal if I'm being, uh, you know, picky. And I am being picky. Let's take this one uh, from Marky, who says, agree or disagree? I love these ones. Uh, nice and simple. We're going to score more points than we did last season. Our goal difference has massively improved and there's a good chance we even finish on a higher points total than the Invincibles. Therefore... This season is a success even if we don't win the league. Yes, I agree. Um, the season has been a success already. Arsenal qualifying for the Champions League, which were their on course to do with plenty of room to spare, would represent a successful season. Why? Because at the start of the season, that is what Arsenal set out to achieve. The fact that we're in a, a better position than any of us thought we could be is a bit of a bonus. Having said that, if we don't go on to finish the job, of course, it'll be really, really disappointing. But we are being chased down by one of the greatest teams this Premier League has ever seen in Manchester City. We have got some incredibly difficult fixtures to come. And we're going to talk about this running a lot more in a lot more detail in the show that I'm going to bring you guys on Saturday, Saturday morning. Um, and... And and so for me, it's not a given that we go on and win the Premier League. I know there's a lot of people that look at it now and go, yep, we're going to do it. And if we don't do it, it will be a bottling. It will be a failure. It will be, a, you know, there will be those meltdowns, right? But that should come from people just being disappointed in the fact that we couldn't get there rather than people wanting to rip up everything that we've done or discredit the work that's gone on prior. Because the work that Mikel Arteta, Edu, the club, to their credit, have done over the last 18 to 24 months, has been phenomenal. To get us into this position has been a success in itself. But of course, there will be that disappointment. And again, it's a bit like what we were saying about Ozil. 
when the dust settles and the emotion sort of gets taken out of it a little bit more, then you look at these things very, very differently. And and I think um, that's going to be the case this season if we miss out on the Premier League. At the time, it will be gut-wrenching and, and heartbreaking. But I think once the summer comes along and people have had a little bit of a break from football and an opportunity to kind of calm down and, and gather their thoughts, I think people will look back and go, my God, what a ride, what a season. I, I agree with that. Um Mark has got a second question as well, which we'll take as uh, soon as he got it in in a nice timely fashion. Uh, he says, Arsenal were interested in a new right back with Fresneda a target. He could arguably be a Zinchenko for the right if we wanted to switch things up a bit. Could that mean that Tierney could then come in for Zinchenko and Ben White could play on the left in some games? Um, I don't know that I'd feel that comfortable with Ben White playing on the left. Um, I think, it's a hard one, isn't it? Like Fresneda is is a very different type of fullback to what to what Ben White is at the moment, and he's a very different type of fullback to Tommy Asu. So if Arsenal did go and sign Fresneda, they would be diverting away from the type, in my opinion. And what I mean by that is that Mikel Arteta is very much a believer in a, in a specific system. So if I quickly explain what I mean. Mikel Arteta believes that at least one of his fullbacks should be pushed into the midfield and should be able to tuck in closely alongside Thomas Partey to support him as the lone deep-lying midfield player, but also to give us an advantage in midfield when we have possession. And what he does to compensate for that, or what he asks his players to do, is we then sort of morph into having a back three. So in-game... You'll see Zinchenko step inside. You'll see Gabriel step slightly left, which is why I always talk about him covering sort of two positions. You'll see Saliba shuffle across and you'll see Ben White tuck in field as well so that when Arsenal do lose the ball, they can morph into a back three and they can support each other. And the distances between those three players are not too big. If you watch really carefully, when Ben White bombs on down the right-hand side, um... Arsenal try uh, to to get either Granit Xhaka or Zinchenko to drop into that position on the left side so that we're, we're sort of balancing it by uh, making sure that we've got that cover coming from that side and that way Saliba can be the one that comes across on the right-hand side, Gabriel shifts across and then a Xhaka or a Zinchenko can tuck in as well. And it's worked like clockwork this season. It's been really, really good. Um but if he went and got someone like Fresneda, who isn't of the build of Ben White and of the build of Tommy Asu, let's be clear here, right? The two fullbacks that Mikel Arteta uses at right back are not conventional fullbacks. They are fullbacks built like centre backs. Why? Because they were centre backs in a previous life. And Ben White um, has developed really well because he can do that tucking in. He's also technically incredibly gifted and he can get forward and support moving forward as well. So I think that that would, a signing like that, I'm not saying that Arsenal won't do it. I don't know that they are or they're not, but it just feels like we'd be diverting away from type a little bit. And I'm not sure that's the right thing to do if you're Mikel Arteta. So I'm not totally convinced about the Fresnader thing. Um Maybe Mikel Arteta has other ideas. Maybe Mikel Arteta would like to have conventional fullbacks as well 
at his disposal so that in certain games, in certain situations, he can change it up a little bit. I don't know, but um, we'll have to see. Okay, um, let's go over to the chat box for uh, some questions from you guys as well. Uh, we'll do uh, a few more minutes. Um, so get your questions in. Uh, I'd love to hear from you. Put a cue at the beginning uh, of your questions. Um, makes it easier for me uh, to pick them out. This is a lovely message from Mohammed, which I'll read out uh, to you all. He says, uh, hi, um, I would like to wish uh, all our Muslim brothers um, a happy Ramadan, uh, sorry, Ramadan Kareem. Uh, we celebrate the holy month of Ramadan from today. Ramadan Mubarak for all of us. Absolutely. Um, I echo that message uh, to all our Muslim viewers, listeners, uh, wishing you all a, a wonderful Ramadan. Um, honestly, uh, the way you guys um, support the show is amazing. And I'm so, so grateful to people of all cultures from so many different parts of the world. Um, I've got uh, sort of lots of Muslim friends. I live in the North London area uh, where there is a, a big Muslim population. And I understand uh, what a big uh, occasion it is for you guys and and the commitment that you guys show to it with the fasting and all of that I think is is it's just amazing um it, it's incredible to see and um, I know that there are going to be footballers who are going to be fasting while they're playing I mean what a commitment um that is you know an elite athlete to to function on no water essentially I think is um it is just a small sign of of how much dedication there is to the religion and 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 to the holy month of ramadan so i take my hat off to you guys because um as i say the commitment is incredible uh, the occasion is huge and um and i wish you all the best and i hope you guys have a great month and enjoy the celebrations that come if i'm not mistaken at the end of the month uh when you uh when you get to break the fast properly as in for the rest of uh the year moving forward so um yeah uh wishing you all the best uh, guest says, uh, question for you, Harry. Uh, do you cash in on a Smith row this summer if we buy another winger and a left-sided eight? Say we got offered 35 to 40 million pounds from Newcastle. The Smith row debate is a, is, is a difficult one, isn't it? Because I don't really know what to say here. Um, I think he's a wonderful talent. I think he's an exceptional footballer, but his fitness is a big, big problem. He's really struggling to get back in the side. When he came on against Bournemouth, I thought he, he looked poor. Um, I put that down to rustiness. I put that down to him not being fit enough. I know that the plan wasn't for him to play as much as he did. Um, but he just just didn't look right. And, and I look at that team now and I just struggle to see how he gets in on the left. You've got Martinelli. You've got Trossard out there. Reese Nelson is better from the left than the right. I, I I really do believe that. And he has produced this season when given opportunities. So, yeah. Um, I don't really know how Emil Smith-Rowe works his way back in. He's got to work incredibly hard and he's got to impress. And at the moment, I don't see any signs of him doing that, but also getting the opportunities to do that. So I'm a little bit worried about what happens with Emil Smith-Rowe, but again, he's young, he's talented, there is rumoured interest, and this could be one where Arsenal look at it um, come the summer and say, it's not working, how do you feel about it? Maybe we should come to some sort of agreement, some sort of compromise, 
and allow the player to leave. I don't know. I don't want him to leave, but I, I do acknowledge and understand that it is something that um, that might just need to happen um, or, or may happen, but we'll see. We'll see. Uh, what else uh, have we got here? Um, Munchkin in the chat says, Hi, Harry. I feel if we win the league, we only have one game a week. Um where a city have more and so um, so hold on so you're saying sweet munchkin in the chat is saying that even if we won the league you wouldn't be convinced about Arteta really I understand what you're saying about um, us having one game a week and and what you're suggesting is that that is the reason we should go on and win the league because we have less competitions to focus on what I would push back on is that Manchester City have a much stronger squad and a much bigger group um, of elite level players. They've got the know-how, they've got the experience, they've got a an incredible manager who's been there, done it. Um, and and so I still, if you told me to bet my house one way or the other on who's going to win the Premier League, this is a bit of a spoiler for Saturday's show, but I'd ever so slightly lean towards Manchester City still. Because of the fixtures remaining. Our fixtures are not just harder than theirs. They are significantly harder. And the games that we have on paper that you'd think, okay, they are winnable. They're up against sides towards the back end of the season that I'm sure are going to be fighting for their lives. There are no easy games in this Premier League. And we've got some injuries at the moment. We're clearly concerned about certain players. Arsenal have sent a member of the medical team out on international duty with Thomas Partey to keep an eye on him. That tells you how worried they are about that. Um, so yeah, it's um, it's a hard one. It's a hard one. Um, you know, we'll, we'll come on to talk about the title running uh, on the show that we do on Saturday. But it's you know whatever happens now, I think Mikel Arteta has proved himself as a manager this season and as someone who can really elevate the level of this team. If we go on to finish second, that would be an incredible campaign. Um, you know, it won't feel like that at the start and at the beginning of, of sort of having to process that and accept that because of the position we're in. But it is by no means a given that Arsenal are going to go on and win the league. It's not even a given that Manchester City are going to get passed by Munich in the Champions League. And if they don't, then that takes away two semi-finals and a final from their schedule. And all of a sudden, that doesn't look uh, too daunting either. So, yeah, there's still so much to happen and, and so much to unfold that it's impossible really to make um, conclusions on that. But I, I can't believe there's people questioning Mikel Arteta at this point in the season. I just don't get where it comes from. Uh, let's take this one from Diego, who says, Harry, uh, what were your thoughts on the final minutes against Crystal Palace? Uh, we showed very high flexibility. Partey was at right back. Tierney was at centre back. Jorginho was really deep. Um, there was lots of flexibility, but it can harm the structure. I think it was about managing people's minutes at that point. You know, I don't think it was an indication of what we're going to see going forward in terms of some of the positions that those players tucked into. I think what Mikel Arteta wanted to do was give certain players minutes, was remove certain players from the equation. And um, and and that's just the way it worked out. The score was what it was. It was comfortable. We were sort of crawling towards the finish line. 
uh, with a lot of room to spare. And I, and I think that that was just literally what it was. Managing the minutes, uh, giving people minutes that needed them, making sure that players who were perhaps in the red zone were, were hooked off of the pitch. I don't think that was any indication as to what we're going to see moving forward. So you've used the phrase flexibility. I don't think it's that. I think it was just kind of um, getting over the line and, and, and managing people and their fitness, as I say, uh, and managing the risk. Remember, these guys have got those stat vests on and, you know, the coaching staff can see exactly, uh, you know, how much work they've put in. They understand these players on an individual level in terms of their bodies, what they can handle, what they can't when they're in the red zone. And all of that is factored in. But yeah, um, good stuff. Uh, listen, we're going to leave it there. Uh, we've been going for the best part of an hour. So thank you all uh, so, so much for tuning in. Uh, really, really appreciate uh, all the amazing uh, questions uh, that you have been sending in as well. Uh, fantastic to hear uh, from so many of you in the live chat, but also in advance of this show. Remember to leave a like on the video if you're watching us on YouTube. Remember to subscribe to the channel if you haven't done so already. Uh, if you're listening on audio, then please do, uh, of course, leave us a review. And what we'll do is we'll wait till Saturday to announce who has won the tickets to the David Seaman live podcast at the Clapham Grand in London. Two tickets up for grabs. Uh, still time to enter. I guess we can extend it, can't we? Yeah, let's extend it. Uh, if you want to, uh, get involved uh, you need to follow the semen pod uh, that's s-e-a-m-a-n uh, pod on twitter you need to follow the chronicles of aguna on twitter as well which is chronicles underscore afc um, and you need to type a comment saying done in uh, the comment section of this video uh, if you aren't with us on youtube then you can tweet us at chronicles uh, underscore afc saying done and we'll be able to pick up your name from there as well. And we'll throw a few more names in the hat. Going into Saturday, we will announce who has won those tickets and we'll be enjoying that show. David Seaman live on stage with Lindsay Hooper presenting and Ray Parler is joining in as well. So it should be a good one. Uh, I will catch you all on Saturday with another edition of the podcast, unless something major happens in the Arsenal world. But we are uh, just winding it down in terms of the schedule at the moment during the international break. But from next week, we'll be ramping it right back up as we build up to Arsenal's big, big game against Leeds United and uh, looking ahead to the remainder of what has the potential to be a phenomenal season. I'll see you all soon. Until next time, take care. All the best. Goodbye. <laughs>